Is it true that you're making Dwight the manager? No. Why would you think that? Well, he and Kelly said, then they pre-fired me. Okay. Okay, guys, just so you all know, no decision has been made. Seems like everybody has an opinion, so who else? Anybody? I just want, for once, a smart, professional, decisive, well-hung man in his 40s. Hey, hey, hey! Okay, fine. Uh, the guy with a tiny penis. Are you happy? Let's hire that guy. She may have a point there. Would a small penis work? Not for the manager of this podcast. People don't grow up and stay there. People leave there. That's what that says. So at that time, yeah, it was 12 guys working for me, doing really well. And then I had a really bad accident at work, which changed my life completely. I remember my grade five or six teacher telling my mom, just lower your expectations for Paul. He's probably going to be a janitor or a bus driver. I gave him a call, met him for coffee at a cheap diner. What's the name of the diner? Oh, it's IHOP. (laughs) (laughs) If you guys are listening, I apologize for calling you a cheap diner. You're an inexpensive (laughs) diner with quality food and great service. At a great price. I've been a fan for a long time. I hope it shows with my support and the fact that I just really look forward to your podcast every week. And that's genuine. You know, I get a lot out of it. And I think for me, it's not just the content, but it's just really nice to hear from other people in similar positions that are trying to make it in business and hear their struggles. And to me, that real life approach of your interview has been really the most impactful to me because I feel like I'm hearing from peers. And Of course, some of these people are way over my level, of course, but I just think there's something to learn from everyone. And you don't have an agenda where you're pumping some business guru. Well, you're the man. I appreciate those kind words. I'll just leave that in as the intro if that's okay. Yeah, no, for sure. Because yeah, you've been my number one supporter from the get-go. So I do appreciate that. If anyone else was listening and they're kind of on the fence, maybe they can actually hear it from somebody else like you who's part of it. Because really, that's what I need is more members in order to keep it going, to be honest, you know? Yeah, I think I'm kind of surprised that I'm your biggest supporter because I just don't feel like I'm supporting that much. I support $100 a month and I feel like that is kind of weak, to be honest. I just feel like anybody with a business out there should be paying it forward to some extent. And that could be in your community. That should be in a wide range of things. And especially with something like what you're doing, I get a lot of value for it. For me, it's worth $100 and like 100 bucks, if we're being honest about it with a business, is really very little. And so I think I'd like to challenge other business owners to, I know you've got your tiers of membership. I get that. But I think a business owner for what they're getting from what you do should at least support $100 a month. That's my spiel on, I think people should support what you're doing more. And I think if people realize, like I asked you a lot of questions the last time around, like how do you gain financially from this? Like how are you supported by the podcast? And I came to realize that you're kind of like a starving artist out there. You've got a passion for what you're doing, but you're not rolling in dollars over there. Like it's a tough go leaving a good paying career like you had. And I think anyone that started a business can appreciate how very hard it is to just leave the safe place and go to the unknown. And so my little hundred dollars a month, honestly, I feel like is probably the least I could do. Well, again, yeah, thank you for that. For me to keep doing it, it's just I have to keep growing the membership because I can't just count on sponsors because that didn't really work out once COVID hit. So hopefully the sponsors are coming back. But still, if I want to do it long term, I mean, I have to grow the membership. I can't rely on sponsors anymore. 
I think people that are listening and gaining, and to me, you're going above and beyond, you're putting people together. And I've listened to the Patreon podcasts that have the group calls. And I mean, these people are getting crazy value for what you're asking from them, which is very little. I think if people can appreciate what they're getting here, maybe they would value it more and support you better. Thanks again. Yeah. I'll say one more thing and then we'll go ahead and get started with your stories. Yeah. Even on my last group call, that was with Seth Bacon on the call. He was giving direct contact information to people to help them out. And it was like two and a half hours of like, hey, I know somebody who can actually help you with your business. Here's their contact info and putting them in touch with people. Especially if you're getting started off with a business and you're not part of the Patreon group. It's like these people on these group calls are trying to help put you in direct contact to people they know. Again, I appreciate the kind words. So are we ready to get started with your episode here? Yeah, let's do it, man. Let's break into it. You're the guru of questions. You've got a great interview style. So I don't want to run over you with a bunch of content. So I'm going to try to let you like if we're dancing, this is a little dance we're going to have. I'm going to let you lead the dance, which is hard for me because I'm type A personality. So yeah, what a gentleman. Well, <laughs> yeah, if you could go ahead and get started and tell us your name, your age and your location, and then tell us a little bit about your business, then we'll get going. Yeah. So my name is Paul Rathnam and I'm 41 years old and I live in a town called Abbotsford, BC, which is British Columbia in Canada. And Abbotsford, for a lot of people probably won't know, Abbotsford is about 45 minutes east of Vancouver. I was just looking up on a map. That's what I'd like to do with everybody, try to figure that out. So Vancouver is on the very west part, right? Yeah. And people that aren't from Canada probably need to know that I think it's 90% of Canadians live within 100 miles of the border between Canada and the US. So most of the population lives down to the southern part of Canada. There's not a whole lot of population once you get 100 miles out. So if you look at it like that, it's a long strip because it goes from the West Coast all the way to like Toronto and the East Coast. But yeah, we are very close and very in touch with the US. And that's our, you know, we're a commodity-based country, which has a lot of export. So that's how the relationship works. Yeah. And so what's your company? Yeah. So my company is Modpools. I actually have two companies, Mod Pro and Mod Pools. Mod Pro was basically the first company I started, one of the first. And then out of that evolved Mod Pools. What are those? What's Mod Pro and Mod Pools? Well, Mod Pro, real quick, Mod Pro started modifying shipping containers into all sorts of different structures. So office space, commercial space, industrial mining labs, just a myriad of things. We build bathrooms that are portable. The only thing we really don't do is housing because it comes with an immense amount of red tape and we're just not interested in that. So we kind of do everything else with containers. So that's called that the mother company. That's the one that's been around since 2010. And then Mod Pools was an offshoot of that. It kind of was a harebrained idea after a few drinks in Palm Springs. <laughs> yeah. And so how big is your company and what's revenue like? Right now, we've got 53 employees. And as of September 30th, that's our fiscal year end, we did just a bit over 16 million. And so did you ever think you'd have a company this size? No, no, man. No, 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 no. I'm playing out with the casino's money. I've been playing with the casino's money a long time ago. I mean, there's just not a chance that I think uh, it would have come to this and got this big and still have a lot of runway. That's the crazy part. Like we're just getting started really in the industry. They have casinos in Canada? They do. They're actually, some of them are in caves and some of them are in igloos. So the igloos are better though. Apparently they pay out better. Well, yeah, thanks for giving us the numbers there. And I think it just helps everyone understand kind of when we're listening, like you said, there's all different types of businesses and business owners I have on. So I guess before we go and dive into details there a little bit more, I'm just curious, what is it like living in Canada? 
Well, I'm a bit biased. I think this is the greatest place on earth. I've done a lot of traveling, fortunately, with mod pools. I've been able to travel most of the US. But what's so unique about Canada is we're so multicultural. So my dad immigrated to Canada in the mid-60s from Sri Lanka. And he brought with him a suitcase, um, basically a guarantee for a job in General Motors Company, which was in a carburetor plant back in the day. I'll cut that short story a bit just to say that he landed here and was like, wow, this is the land of opportunity. So living in Canada has a lot of opportunity. It has a lot of multiculturalism and the climate's actually quite mild. We only get a few weeks on the West Coast here of snow per year and a few weeks of negative temperatures. But otherwise, it's pretty mild. What it does do a lot, as you can imagine, living on a coast of any country is it rains a lot. We're in a rainforest. So you got to just accept that it's going to be wet often. And I tell my kids all the time, when they're like, Dad, it's raining. I'm like, it's just water. It's no big deal. Just get out there and go play. So that's just a little bit about living in the Vancouver area. And from there, do you want to go ahead and do you want to reel it back to when you started your business or before that? I think it was kind of interesting. Maybe you could just even pick up why both your parents moved to Canada. Yeah. So my dad moved here from Sri Lanka and my mom is from Manitoba, which is a few provinces east. And they met in Vancouver and got married. So that was an interesting time because my dad had passed on a few years ago, but he was very dark skinned and my mom is very white, <laughs> blonde hair. So they got a bit of, you know, they were in a, an interesting time in the 60s that wasn't so accepted to have that kind of marriage. So they grew up with some challenge. They, you know, got married in that challenging time, you know, into the 70s, into that. So yeah, just very interesting. So a lot of times people think I'm adopted because I'm quite white looking and my brother and sister are both kind of more half brown, I guess, ish or something. So anyway, I don't know if that answers that. It is interesting. Like I said, you said your dad moved for a job. Did he get paid a lot more moving here and your mom had her own job too? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened is my dad sailed on a gospel ship for seven years in the Indian Ocean and the oceans around Indonesia. And I think the average person on that boat lasted about two weeks because it was such horrible conditions. It was an old mining vessel. Back in World War II, they used to use wooden hauled boats because the mines wouldn't attach to them. And they would sweep with these big nets and catch the mines and they would blow up behind them. So this was a kind of a leftover ship from that. And my dad sailed on that, basically giving first aid and help to little tribes and communities and spreading the gospel. He's Christian and, and the, the boat was a Christian boat. And so he did that for seven years and then went back to Sri Lanka after seven years and then had this opportunity and there was a job share program. So a person from Canada would go to Sri Lanka to work and Sri Lanka go to Canada and they would trade as this program existed. So that's how he ended up here. And so I guess he got out of preaching, I guess, Christianity and got into a job at, did he say Ford or I was trying to? Yeah, GM actually. GM. Okay, close. It was a GM plant, but he never really, that was just, the job was just a means to come and preach the gospel. And he never gave that up. So he was a pastor of a church as long as I can remember and involved in the ministry. So I grew up in the pew of a church, essentially, because we were always at church. So he planted churches, started churches, and whether there was a church building that we had or whether it was in our living room, my parents were always ministering and preaching. What came with that was actually a crazy lifestyle because my parents really didn't value earthly possessions much and they gave just about everything they could away so that was an interesting childhood like we'd come home from school i'd remember and the couch would be gone and be like where's the couch like oh you know brother so-and-so they just moved to town and they're really struggling so we brought them some groceries and gave them our couch and was like what you know so we just started to get used to it the card be gone i'd often come home and my mom is taking our groceries out of the fridge 
and packing them up to give to somebody. And these are people, and I don't know if you know any people in church ministry, but there's not a lot of money. I mean, podcasting slim, church ministry is super slim. <laughs> there's very little money in it. So we didn't have much to the fact that people would, you know, for Christmas, people would take it on themselves to buy us Christmas gifts because they just knew we weren't going to have any. So it was really an interesting childhood. I learned a lot about giving. I think I probably got a little bitter through that process because I just felt really poor. We didn't go without food very often, but there was definitely times where there wasn't much food and my dad would let us eat first. And then, yeah, it was an interesting childhood. Let's put it that way. Energetic Austin here, and we all want to know we have enough to get where we want to go. For instance, you either have enough energy to run a marathon or you're on the side of the road wheezing. How about your startup? Does it have enough cloud computing power to win and handle the really big customers? You might think stable, enterprise-ready cloud infrastructure like Oracle's is out of reach for your new company, but Oracle for Startups was made just for you. Oracle wants to help you land those big customers, so they're offering preferred pricing on enterprise cloud for startups, free cloud credits, and 70% off their cloud services. And with multi-cloud support and no vendor lock-in, you can build it any way you want. Oracle for Startups doesn't want you wheezing on the side of the road. They want you to have enough power to scale and land your dream customer. Visit oracle.com forward slash go to forward slash millionaire or check the link in the episode description below. Again, that's oracle.com forward slash go to forward slash millionaire. Hey guys, 2021 is looking up. New beginnings means new opportunities to grow your business. If part of your strategy is adding new members to your team, LinkedIn Jobs finds the right person quickly. To make things better, your first job post is free. One of the features that I love about LinkedIn Jobs is how I can quickly find a candidate in my geographic area. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 722 million members worldwide. Getting started is easier than ever with new features to help you find qualified candidates quickly. Post a job with targeted screening questions and LinkedIn will quickly get your role in front of more qualified candidates. Manage job posts and contact candidates from a single view on the familiar LinkedIn.com as functions are streamlined onto one simple screen. And now you can do this all from your mobile device, no matter where the day takes you. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. And now you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash millionaire. Again, that's linkedin.com slash millionaire to post a job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah. And so as you grew up, were you just thinking, hey, I want to have a career or business where I don't, you know, you can still give, but not give everything away where you were, I guess, living the same lifestyle? Yeah, exactly. So I actually kind of followed suit. So as I grew up, I definitely realized that I didn't want to live poor. And my parents would not describe themselves as poor. So mom, if you're listening, I get it. They don't believe that's not their mentality, but I wanted more for sure. And I quickly realized that I started working for my uncle, who was a big part of my life growing up and an inventor and an amazing guy. But I started working for him when I was like 13 and pushing wheelbarrows full of concrete and working extremely hard as a 13 year old kid. And I realized that, hold on, I can work hard and I can get ahead. And that was kind of my first realization to that. Now, the other thing that kind of in suit was I grew up with some learning disabilities, was diagnosed 
pretty early in school and then throughout school really struggled with reading with writing my comprehension was really high and my problem solving was really high so i got tested all the time they couldn't figure out there you know they wanted to put me in a special needs box but i excelled in some areas quite high so i was above average in some areas and then i was super below in in some other areas so growing up going through school was really challenging it was really hard to get on the short bus and go to a special school two, three times a week. And it's hard. You're the guy that gets on the short bus. I mean, no, no one wants to be the guy that gets on the short bus, but that was a really hard for me. And it really affected my self-esteem. It was just challenging. Like I, anytime the test, you know, scores were posted on the back of the class, I was always on the bottom. Like I was just always there. So I think you give up at a point when you're trying really hard and you're failing all the time, you just start giving up on yourself. So I started doing that and just started to have a bad attitude and, you know, combine that with being poor, not doing well in school, struggling really bad. It was challenging, challenging for sure. So what kind of saved me, I think, was sports. Because as an athletic guy, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was kind of above average for strength and being an athlete. So I started really doing well in gym class. And then my gym teacher would be like, hey, you should join the wrestling team. And so I joined the wrestling team and really do really well. And that kind of like was the first time in my life that I started to get a win. In life, we all need to have a win because a win is just so, it feels so good. And when you're used to losing all the time, you get used to losing. And to get a win was just like, man, it was just like a shot of heroin. It just wakes you up, man. It felt so good. So I started winning and I started really applying myself to sports in school. And that's what really kind of gave me the confidence that I could do something, I could accomplish something. So I don't know if at all, I know I'm going on a bit. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. I mean, you know, my wins are new Patreon members. So hopefully we'll get some of those during this call. So what they diagnose you with? Yeah. So the problem is, is they couldn't nail it down. They couldn't figure it out. I wasn't dyslexic. And to all the way to grade seven, so grade seven at the time, that was the transition between elementary school and high school. There was no middle school. So I remember my grade seven teacher pulling me in and saying, hey, Paul, it's the end of the year. All your friends are going into high school. I want to talk to you about that. He's like, this year, you did nothing. You did no homework. You didn't really barely learn anything. You know, you tested out at a grade four reading level. So really, you should stay here. But you're just a really nice guy. And I'm going to put you through to grade eight. So good luck. I just feel like I should do this for you. So that was a really kind of interesting conversation. So he's basically kicked me into grade eight. I got a grade four reading level. They're not sure what's wrong with me. They're not sure why I can't learn the way other kids learn. So anyway, I don't know if that answers what was wrong with me. I don't think anybody knows what's wrong with me. And I don't even know what's wrong with me still to this day. I just learned differently. I learned really differently. Now it's made me an expert in my field. I'm very exceptional at my job and I've been able to build companies and be extremely innovative. And my problem solving skills are off the charts, I think. And I'm trying not to pump my own tires, but that's what makes me great at what I do. That's my superpower. So all I had to do is just get through the reading, writing, the learning part of school. But I didn't look back after high school. I barely graduated. I was in a position where I got to have a tutor in my final exams. And she happened to be a girl that liked me and was kind of cute. So I'm not going to say for sure, but there's a good chance that she wrote a good part of my final exams. I graduated, but did I really graduate? I don't know. It's debatable. <laughs> But I got through high school and all I needed was just to kick that back and move forward. And once I did that, I never looked back and I started just working really, really hard. So you graduated in 95 or 96? 97. Okay. Sorry, 98. Oh, Lord. Yeah, sorry. Graduated 98. Boy, that's a long time ago. 1998. Graduated high school with honors. 
How old were you? I was 17 years old. Okay. I didn't know if they like ended up holding you back at all at any point or anything. Oh, sorry. I did skip that. So grade one, and this is part of the compounding learning problem. So my mom homeschooled me in grade one and bless my mom. She's not a great teacher. And she would tell you that. (laughs) I don't know why she homeschooled us, but she homeschooled us. I think it was a great Christian plan there. But I think she quickly gave up on that. And then I went to grade two and grade two, they were like, you're in the wrong class. You don't know anything. So you should go ahead and get back to grade one and try that again. So that was also a huge turning point. I can remember that day very clearly where they came into the class and were like, okay, short, chubby kid, you're in the wrong class. You need to go leave all your friends and go to grade one. And that was pride stripping and very difficult. So I did fail grade one. So you graduated and you said, what do you do from there? Yeah, so I'm pretty involved in ministry at this time. I'm playing guitar. I'm traveling with a group that does Christian ministry, um, leading worship and songs and playing guitar and that kind of thing. And yeah, just so I'm working really hard at a job called uh, Terrasol at the time, which is an environmental company that sprays that green stuff on the side of the road. So I'm working there and making a few bucks. And then I'm traveling with this group at the same time. We end up traveling to Idaho, Emmett, Idaho. And you'll have to look that on the map. It's a little spec. But we end up traveling there. And in that process, the pastor of the church, and there was like 10 people in that church, I think altogether, maybe a few more. He's like, hey, you should come back and be our youth pastor. And I'm like, that sounds like a horrible idea. So I'm not doing that. So we kind of went on, we were traveling, we're doing other stuff, came back to Canada. And then the guy that I was traveling with, kind of the leader of the group, he said, you should consider doing that. You know, he's like, you should pray about that. And like, there's no use. I'm not going to Emmett, Idaho. I don't know anybody there. They weren't going to pay me anything. So there was no money. I'd had to raise my own support if I was going to go there. So that wasn't great. Don't know anybody there. So just wasn't much to consider. But nonetheless, I did throw up a couple prayers up there. I don't know that I've heard from God much in my life. I think I have a few times, but I just felt like you can go both ways and both will be fine. So you can stay and you'll do well, or you can go and you'll do well. And I just was like, well, if it's a neutral, then why not try it? Go to this Idaho, this little Emmett, Idaho, and see what happens. So I literally two months later packed up and I moved down there not knowing anybody and moved into being a youth pastor. And I really didn't have much experience being a youth pastor. I wouldn't rank myself as being great at it, but I did it. And I just kind of passionately did it. So I ended up moving to Idaho and I lived there for four years. And that was pretty quick after high school. I would say within a year. And then anyone's wondering how you spell it is E-M-M-E-T-T. I'm looking, it says total population 7,000. Yeah. And that hasn't changed since 1999. Yeah, I believe it. People don't grow up and stay there. People leave there. That's what that says. Yeah. You look at pictures and yeah, it doesn't seem like anything's been built there in a while. So what is it like being in a place like that from 18 to what, like 22 or so? Yeah, it was my university. I didn't have the grades to go to even college, I don't think. I don't think a college would have accepted me. And nor did I want to. Like, I just knew early on in life. Like, I remember my grade five or six teacher telling my mom, just lower your expectations for Paul. He's probably going to be a janitor or a bus driver because he's just not good at school. Like, that's probably where he's going to end up. So it's an interesting point to be at in life when no one has expectations for you, because I think expectations often hold us back. They hold us back from our true potential. Like, I had no, like, when I say I'm playing with the casino's money, that's my life. Like, honestly, I married way up. My wife's an amazingly beautiful, 
awesome person. Everything in life for me, it's ridiculous how that was so untrue. And so here I am, you know, whatever, going to be a bus driver or a plumber or something. So I end up in Idaho and I spend four years there. I think what I hear when people go to college and university, they go through this growing up phase. They do some partying, which wasn't part of my portfolio being a youth pastor at a church. <laughs> I skipped that part. I think I got to that later in life. But, you know, I had a chance to grow up. I had a chance to be on my own, which is what people get out of college. And I think and again, this is my opinion, and it's pretty slanted because I don't have a formal education. But I think the education isn't the most important part. I think it's the life skills. It's how you treat people. It's the kind of person you become in those young adult years, the character that you gain, living on your own, your own responsibilities. Like To me, I think those are the big takeaways from that experience. And I'm not downplaying education, but I think when you get into the real world and you start your life, education can be kind of golden handcuffs. They can kind of keep you in a tax bracket. They can keep you a course in life. Whereas I just like, it was like the Wild West, man. I had, I had nothing to lose. It didn't matter if I became a janitor or if I started a company that was doing 16 million in revenue. It didn't matter. And that to me is so valuable in my life, just not having any expectations. So I know I went on a bit of a rabbit trail there. I hope that makes sense. Like you said, you're in Idaho, you're getting rich doing the preaching. And then what do you do from there? Yeah. So, I mean, listen, Austin, you're a very honest person. I'm a very honest person. I don't hold much back. What ended up happening is I met a girl there and we started a relationship and it wasn't going well. And I wasn't following the Christian rules of what a youth pastor should and shouldn't be doing in that relationship. And I knew it and call it temptation or whatever it is. It wasn't good for me. It wasn't good for me as a person with character. And I just didn't feel right about continuing. The actual, the youth ministry was going exceptionally well. That youth group had about 70 kids in it, that first one. And there was like 15 or 20 people in that church. So we were gathering a good crowd. That's like half the town. It was pretty much. Yeah. No, honestly, like <laughs> yeah, a lot of the high school kids were coming because my approach was just to empower people. And so we took trained people how to play instruments and got them empowered, leading the group. So it wasn't so much led by me. It was led by them. It was self-led. So it was going really well. But other side, I just felt this few years in, it was just this relationship started kind of near the end of my being there. And it didn't feel right anymore. I didn't feel like I was being real and transparent. And I didn't never in life to a point, I do not like preaching one thing and doing another thing. I just don't. I like to be honest, real, transparent. What you see is what you get. You might not like what you hear or what you see, but this is me and I'm not trying to be anybody else. So I didn't want to be fake. I had to kind of come to that realization that I'm just not being who I'm saying, like I'm not being real here. So I kind of was looking for an out. My friend called me up who was my best friend after in high school and called me up and said, Hey, I'm starting this business. We're going to do some, we're going to cut down a bunch of trees and, and cut them into two by fours or <laughs> lumbers or some stupid idea. I don't know why I thought it was a good idea, but he's like, yeah, we're going to start the lumber business. He's like, I need you to come up here and be my business partner. And it's going to work. He's like, you got to move up here because he kind of knew that I was struggling. And so I just needed that excuse. So I packed up everything and I moved back to my parents' place and we started doing exactly that, cutting trees and turning them into two by fours and making no money. Yeah, because it's commodity business too. So it seemed like it'd be hard to, it's not like you're coming up with a different business, you know, two by fours or whatever, or the price is the same everywhere. So like, did he have any background in that? 
he had a passion for it. So he followed the industry. He kind of knew what the prices were and he was really great at selling himself. So he had talked himself into this mill and volunteered me to run it. And it was just a small portable mill. So it was just this bandsaw mill that would go back and forth and you would just dimensionally cut wood. So that business, it didn't last long. I mean, I was doing all the work and, you know, he's the spokesman and he's getting the jobs. It didn't last long. But what came out of it was on the drive up from Idaho, he's like, there's this girl you got to meet. You've got to meet her. She plays piano in church. And at that time, I was, you can imagine, I was kind of burnt out on church. I was feeling pretty down on myself. I'd kind of sinned and fallen short, wasn't living the life. I'm like, man, I don't want to meet a girl that plays piano at church. And between me and you, typically they're overweight girls that you don't want to date. It's just the stereotype, right? Right. I'm like, listen, buddy. And he's like, I can't show you a picture of her. Like, it's a blind date. I'm like, there's no way I'm going on a blind date with a girl that plays piano in church. Not a chance. I want to break from this all. Like I was coming up for like rehab, just like get my head straight. I'd been in this relationship, ended up being really unhealthy and I just needed to get out of it. There's a lot of, I've been cheated on and just, I could bring you to tears with them, with all the sadness that, that there was. But anyway, I just needed to get out of that. So I'm like, there's no way I'm meeting a girl. I just got out of this whole crazy scenario. And he goes, no, you're meeting her and you're going to be here tomorrow. And trust me, she's perfect for you. Finally, I agreed. I brought my guitar over. He's like, you got to bring your guitar and basically met my wife. We fell in love and we got married within, I think, four or five months. It was crazy. So I ended up meeting her and we went down for a friend's wedding and back to Idaho. We ended up getting married at a divorce court, kind of eloped. And we were engaged, but we were just like, someone's like, you should get married with us. And we were like, yeah, it's a great idea. It was a crazy story, but that is probably the best thing that ever happened to me in life was meeting her, getting married because she ended up, you know, and she is, she's my ally, my partner, the person, she's my cheerleader, the person that believed in me and let me take all the risks. So yeah, that's kind of my quick love story there. And so you were 23 as all this happened? Yeah, exactly. She's about three, three and a half years younger than me. So yeah, we got married. And she's like, Paul, you should start a mod pool company and start <laughs> taking these containers and turning them into pools or real estate. Yeah, you know, our first business was when I met her, she was teaching horseback riding lessons on her parents' farm. She was doing it like very casually. She's not a business person like I, like she's not aggressive like I am with business. And she's casually teaching these lessons and she's working at a gym at the same time. I'm like, okay, how much are you making at the gym? She's like $11 an hour. I'm like, how much do you charge for a lesson? And it was like, I think it was like $30 an hour. I'm like, okay, hold on. You got to stop the gym and let's do more lessons. So I started pumping the tires on that. The property her parents owned, obviously, we kind of made a five-year goal to buy it. And I think within two and a half years or something, we ended up buying it from them for about a million dollars. That was kind of our first business was the riding lesson business. And, and we ended up with about 130 students a week with a few instructors. And that was kind of our first real kind of like actually having cash. And I can remember back, I'm going to go back up a little bit, but when we first got married, she wanted to go in grocery shop. And I remember her going down the aisles of the grocery store and taking anything she wanted and putting it in the cart. And I'd never done that before. Like I'd never been in that financial position to be able to buy anything you want at the grocery store. So that was a real like, whoa, this is crazy. We have enough money. She's like, yeah, we can do this. It's like going to be like 150 bucks or something. I was like, oh, I'd never done that. Growing up, we always went with like $20, $30. You add it up as you go. You get to the till. You're not a dollar over, you know? So anyway, just backing up a little bit. So then we start this business and get this business going. And then at the same time, I built my first house. 
So I built my first house because buying a house was more expensive than building one at the time. So I'd never really built a house. I'd kind of been involved in construction growing up a bit, you know, as just labor. And I was driving a truck at the time. So I got my truck driver's license. So my grade four teacher wasn't too far off, actually, because I ended up being a truck driver. Yeah. So I started building houses and started selling them. And we, anyway, I don't know if you want to get into that. I'm going on a bit of a rabbit trail there. No, it's all good. It is interesting. So even the horseback riding business, did you kind of help her and like you did more of the business side as far as trying to figure out how to get more students and whatnot? And you're like, hey, honey, you have to do this because we'll make a lot more money doing it this way. Yeah, I think I was the driver behind it. So I was kind of the equipment guy. We were buying horse. We needed a pretty good amount of horses at the time for that size of school. So going to auctions, buying horses, equipment. We needed also a brand new facility because we were just basically outside teaching. And you can imagine in our climate here, teaching riding lessons in December is really hard to get anybody to come out. So at that same time, right about there, and I'm getting the timeline maybe a bit squished together here, but we built and sold houses. We came up with about a quarter million dollars in cash. We offered to buy the property, which her parents were like, you don't have any money. And then we told them, yeah, I think we do. The property appraised for 750000 They wanted us to buy it for a million because they felt like there was more value to the property than the assessment. But we bought it for a million. So we had that quarter million dollars that we had worked really hard for by buying and selling and building houses, put that down, bought the farm, and then immediately went to build a 25,000 square foot indoor riding ring facility, which I built myself after work, basically, with a couple of other guys. So we built that up. That kind of is the Matsky Stables business. So that's how we got to that point where we had this reoccurring revenue, this monthly revenue coming in, 130 students. We were able to keep them year round and keep the training going because we had this big indoor facility that we built. And we did it basically in cash. At that time, I was pretty into Dave Ramsey. And I believed being debt-free was kind of the way to be. I think we were at the time, we were saving about $10,000 a month towards that project after buying the farm. Did you make your real money in the real estate or doing the equestrian lessons over a couple of years? The equestrian was really good cash flow. And that was kind of my first experience of learning about cash flow. It had a really good reoccurring revenue. The big capital came from building and selling and buying houses. My first project that I built, again, I didn't know how to build a house. I just started doing it. I just came home, basically said, we should build a house. And my wife's like, yeah, you can do that. And that's all I needed at the time was someone to be like, yeah, you can do it. Yeah, I can do it. So I just did it. And then 10 months later, we sold that place and we made about $120,000. And in Canada, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but if it's your primary residence and you improve on it, sell it, that's all tax-free money. So we walked with $120,000 and we're like, holy smokes, we've never had so much money. I mean, to prelude that, I had a motorbike that I paid for, which was an R1. It was a nice bike. And I bought that down in Idaho and I bought and sold cars to make money to survive down there. And at that time, I did it well enough to be able to buy this $10,000 motorbike in cash. And my wife owned her car. So we sold our assets, which were a car and a motorbike for the down payment to be able to buy the lot and build the house. And so that turned into $110,000 profit. So, you know, we got, I don't know what it was, $125,000 back or something. And then we proceeded to build another house, buy another property. And I just went on a buying spree at that point. I leveraged everything. I think I had about, I had over a million dollars of real estate on my original $15,000 investment. I just kept rolling it over, buying a property, leveraging that, leveraging the rent. And I just played that shell game to the point where my banker called me and was like, how do you sleep at night? You owe so much money. It's crazy. Because I was trying to buy more properties and she basically hit the brakes and said, you got to stop. You're basically out of control. But out of that, we liquidated all of our properties at the right time just before the crash. 
and we bought the farm and the farm was a million bucks, but a quarter million down. And we kept one like rental condo at the time. And then we sold that as seed money to build the barn. Hey guys, Energetic Austin here. Are you looking for a historical safe investment vehicle that is recession and COVID resilient? Or are you worried about the erratic stock market, the long-term effects of inflation, or the new increases in taxes? As a smart and savvy business entrepreneur, you know there has to be a good option out there for you to invest your hard-earned money. Well, one of our Patreon members, Mr. Jonathan Tuttle out of Chicago, has all the answers to your problems. He runs a real estate fund called Midwest Park Capital, and they invest in mobile home parks. Mobile home parks, you say? Well, yes. Did you know that mobile home parks have been one of the safest real estate investments over the past 50 years? Plus, you get all the best tax benefits of all real estate property types by investing in mobile home parks. Plus, they help hedge against inflation. And guess what? You can have all this done by a seasoned investor without you doing any of the work. How? Well, just contact Jonathan Tuttle at Midwest Park Capital. Again, that's MidwestParkCapital.com to learn how you can invest in mobile home parks today. One more time, go visit MidwestParkCapital.com. I was looking for some sort of community where I could get some ideas on business. I could find motivation, inspiration to pursue my own things. I've technically had my own business for 12 years now, but it's a really small operation and I'm trying to do something bigger. Being told just go out there and do it is very helpful. And that's why I joined. Well, I guess you weren't listening to Dave Ramsey while you're buying and leveraging all this stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, I think I selectively chose to, to listen. To <laughs> That's what I was about to say. I was about to say your selective listening is what it sounded like. I did it my own way. I like the idea of buying things in cash and not having bad debt. And I consider bad debt to be a TV, a car, Anything, you know, that isn't real estate to me was like money I didn't want to owe. And I think that's where people often go wrong. They, they accumulate this bad debt, this debt that has no value. Whereas my debt was all in real estate, but it was very, it was at my fingertips. Like I could sell a property really quick and the market was appreciating so much at that time that it seemed very risk-free. Now, I think it was a bit not naive if I look back. If I didn't do that, I wouldn't have got to the point to buy the property, build that huge facility in cash, just about, I think we only $450,000 build. And I think we owed at the end about 100,000. We cash flowed it pretty good, but that preludes Mod Pro. So if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have the cash flow in Matsky Stables or the asset to leverage to start Mod Pro. I know I'm spending some time in this beginning of the story, but it really is the important stuff because people get into business and they've got to bring in a partner or they've got to have some equity investment. And right away, they start out by giving away what they don't even know what they have yet. They're giving away ownership of their company and they're getting right into debt. And we didn't have to do that. So that was a huge advantage. And what was the name of the stables? Because you said it twice. Yeah, it's a weird name. It's Matt Squee Stables. How do you spell that? Curious. Yeah. So it's M-A-T-S-Q-U-I. Yeah. Do you still own it and still do that? Yeah. We still live on that property and we own the business, but what we did is we shut it down. Once Mod Pro started to do really well, we had some babies on the way and stuff. We decided to shut that down as a riding stable and just use it as a boarding stable. So right now we just board horses on it and we do it kind of invite only. My kids all have horses. They're 11, 8, and 7. And my wife has a horse. So it's kind of like their horses, their friends, and it's their little community. So it's not really profitable business anymore. It's, it probably breaks even, I think. Just jumping back into your story. So 
what year do we want to be as far as it seems like everything has was successful within the couple of years of meeting your wife and building Masquade Stables? Am I saying that right? I'm trying. <laughs> yeah, Masquade Stables. I think it's a native word. Yeah. So Masquade Stables, we've done that and we bought properties. So right about this time, and the timelines kind of start weaving together. So it's not just one timeline, but right about 2006, I got this call. Well, this is an old story now because I had an ad in the phone book in the yellow pages. And I had this company, this, this renovation company, which I was doing kind of at the same time as we were doing the stables, I was renovating houses and buying houses, building stuff. So I had this renovation company and this place called Big Steel Box calls me and says, hey, do you know how to frame shipping containers? And my dad had always taught us growing up, like say yes to opportunity and then figure it out later. So I was like, yeah, I can totally do that. And I was like, what the hell is a shipping container? I had no idea what, what a shipping container was. And they're like, great. Well, can you come on Thursday and come frame these containers? I was like, great. Yeah, no problem. So anyway, I show up there and I'd never seen a container before. And there's a pile of wood there. And thankfully there was a guy on site that he was on his way out. So he was trying to get out of the job. So he was so happy to see us. And he gave us like a 10 minute rundown on how to frame these containers and how to work on them. And my brother and I were there because my brother was working for me at the time. So we had gone to Home Depot and bought my brother a tool belt because he didn't even have one at the time. So he shows up with this shiny new tool belt. We start framing these containers. And then the owners of the company come by at the end of the day because they were there at the start of the day. They're like, yeah, here's Peter. Peter's going to show you what to do. And we'll see you at the end of the day end of the day, they come and we're going, oh God, they're going to fire us like this. It took too long and everything. And they were like, so impressed to our amazement. They're like, wow, you guys did a great job. Do you guys want to come tomorrow? And we're like, sure, let's do this. So that was kind of the humble beginnings of getting into container modifications. And so what that led into was a relationship where I contracted with this company. I pieced out all the work. So as it kind of happened, there was other trades involved. So we did the framing to start with and the carpentry end of it. So the finishing the sheeting inside these containers to turn them into office space. They had this big contract for a company. And then the other trades would come in like spray foam, electrical, plumbing, painting. But one by one, these trades kept dropping off and they kept jamming on the guys and they wouldn't show up. And, you know, like typical trades, right? Busy, don't have time for the small work. So I just kept taking on the next trade. So the painter wouldn't show up. And I'd say, well, I can paint. And they're like, really? You can? I'm like, yeah, I'll figure it out. So the painter would come back the next time or I'd convince the painter to show me how to paint. And, you know, you'd take again another 10 minutes. Be like, here's the sprayer. This is how you put the paint in. Go up and down. Okay, I got to go. And so I'd take over painting. One by one, I took over all the trades to the point where my company was contracting with Big Steel Box and doing all of the work. So we did complete construction and modification of the containers. So they would get the job. They would turn it over to us. We would agree on a piece price to do that job. And then we'd go ahead and execute it. So that was kind of the starting of this opportunity of getting into shipping containers, which was a very niche business. At that time, containers were just starting to come on as far as like people using them for other alternative spaces. And just so everyone's on the same page, what's a container in case they're naive or not sure? Because I've got multiple ports where I'm at, so I understand. Sure. Yeah. A shipping container is what we use to transport cargo exclusively from China and from basically around the world. So what happens is these containers are all built in China. They're steel boxes, essentially with doors on them. They fill them with cargo and then they ship them throughout the world and they get unloaded. So that's where your TVs, microwaves, your clothes, everything comes in shipping containers. And they're all exclusively built as of, I think, 10 years ago, all in China. 
And what happens is these containers are built in China, but a lot of them, they don't want them back. So they're called one trip containers. So, and I think the last stat I heard, which was quite a few years ago, is they'll build six containers, but they only want one back because we as a country or North America exports primarily garbage, recycled cardboard and garbage back to China. And I think steel, like recycled steel. So we don't have a lot of export to send back to China. So it's kind of an off balance shipping arrangement, but it works out because we ended up with these cheap structures that are one trip containers. The freight's already been paid on them. They've kind of, they've been paid down because of the value of being able to trade these goods back and forth. And so they're a really low cost steel structure. And I'm looking at the sizes, what, 40 feet by 20 feet by 10 feet? Yeah. So our standard sizes are- I'm Sorry, I'm in feet. I know that's different from you guys, right? No, actually, we're in feet too. I think the world in the 70s was all going to switch over to metric and then you guys jammed on us. Thanks, Americans. But anyways, we're kind of in between, but mostly feet here. So we do an 8x20, 8x40. Those are the two most standard sizes. And then they come in tall containers. So standard is 8 foot 6 tall. High cube is 9 foot 6 tall. And those are the basically the Lego blocks that we have to work with when it comes to containers. Now, you can get a 10-foot container, but they're more expensive because they put less cargo in them, and it's a little bit complicated. They go all the way up to 53 foot, of course, but a 53-foot container is a domestic container. That makes more sense. I'm looking at them now. Yeah, so the smallest one you're looking at is length, because when you're talking about length, just so everyone has, I mean, I can look at a picture or whatever, but the minimum is usually like 10 feet in length. The, the ones that you work on, was there a standard size that you generally did your work on? Yeah, so mostly 20 foot and 40 foot. Those were the bread and butter containers. They're the most readily available. They're the cheapest and they make the most sense for transporting too, because they're very transportable throughout the world. And that's the infrastructure that came, you know, in the basically in the industrial, I think just after the industrial revolution, they had to figure out how to transport goods. So the container was born and that was like the eighth wonder of the world now, how we get our cargo around, right? Hopefully that paints a bit of a picture of the containers. That opportunity started there. I grabbed a hold of it and I started getting into that industry, cutting my teeth and learning as much as I can. And I had the opportunity, I was in the position to have that opportunity where it was at my fingertips. I could just put my hand up and say, hey, I'll try painting, I'll try welding, I'll try. And so that gave me the opportunity to learn all those skills. Basically, how you even got those skills, though, really, were you just a contractor? Because it sounds like you're obviously very handy, and those people called you, and then you're able to figure these things out. Because, I mean, once you're a handy guy, you know, it's pretty easy for people to figure out whether they're handy or not, you know? I'm pretty handy, too. I'm good at fixing stuff and whatnot, and I'm like, I'd probably take on exactly what you're talking about, where I've fixed a lot of stuff, but some people aren't. You know, once you know how to kind of work those things, and you have one person show you once, usually you can kind of figure it out from there. Yeah. And I think that was kind of, you know, we started out talking about some of my weaknesses, but some of my strengths. One of my strengths is problem solving. In fact, I really like it. And as a business owner, it's one of the things that I don't shy away from and I really enjoy is dealing with problems. And as a business owner, as you get to a certain size, you realize that a lot of your day is spent solving problems. So being able to solve problems and liking the challenge, yeah, I was able to really adapt and learn these skills and these trades quite quickly, quite efficiently. And that really gave me this platform of having these skills and it paid really well. At that time, I want to say at the prime of working contracting, I had about 12 guys working for me and I was taking home after taxes, I think I was taking home probably between 110 to 150 a year. So I was making really good money. Especially you're in your late 20s at this point? Yeah. So that would be 2009-ish, somewhere around there. Yeah. Because it sounds like, yeah, you started 2006, you were saying, so about three years of constantly trying to figure it out and you build a team to help you do this. 
Exactly. So I start hiring and training people. And the nice thing is because I learned every aspect of the job myself and did it myself, I wasn't slave to somebody's skill. I could take a willing person and train them and teach them how to do the job. And that differential in wage, I could make that money. So I didn't have to pay them $30 an hour as a painter. I could pay them $20 an hour and teach them how to do a few aspects of painting. So that is foreshadowing into mod pools now where I've learned all those jobs. I know how to do everything in my company. It's not like I've hired outside skill and trade. So that paid forward immensely in the factory setting. So at that time, yeah, it was 12 guys working for me doing really well. And then I had a really bad accident at work, which changed my life completely. Yeah, before we touch on that, I mean, how many containers were you guys doing a day? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, dollar-wise. Or just number-wise. We had some months that were about $300,000 revenue months. Now, that wasn't my $300,000. That's what they were selling. And I was kind of, we had this relationship where we were all very good friends. And so I was in the office to a point where I knew what the numbers were because we were pretty open about the sale price because we had to make sure they made margin and I made margin. So I was aware to the fact that their good months were about 300000 in modified containers. So how many would your team flip, would you say, or get them ready in a month? We'd probably do, I'd say at least 20 units. So you were doing like 20 units a month at your, at your max, but what were they doing? I mean, you told us about framing. So are you just putting wood inside for them to put drywall later on or do the electrical and stuff? Because that's what I'm confused. Oh, not necessarily confused, but I'm sure other people are interested too. Because I mean, I've looked into your company a little bit, but you know, all I'm hearing is like you're coming in there and it sounds like you're building almost a house within there. Is that what's going on or something else going on? No, exactly. So we would start out with the steel work. We would cut the doors and windows and weld those in. And then we would paint the unit. We'd prep it for paint it. And then we would go into that framing stage. So we'd go into the interior. And the way we've developed how to do it is we would pressure fit the framing and then we would spray foam it in place. So spray foam is really the only insulation that you can use in a container because containers sweat. So if you use bad insulation, you'll just end up with water on the floor all the time and it'll be like a little rainforest. So we would spray in the insulation and then we would put on the drywall and it would be a pre-finished drywall or plywood. A lot of times in that day, it was a plywood finish because it was really industrial and strong. With that, after you got done retrofitting them, so they are almost brand new. I mean, they've just made a cross a trip from, let's say again, China to where you are, especially I mean, they've been used once, so they're still good metal and whatnot. It's just, are you taking those and making those into offices? Or because, again, this is, I guess, 2010, 2009 or whatever, maybe when I might have started seeing these. Because before that, I mean, I felt like I hadn't seen those before. So it seemed like maybe you're just on the forefront of this. Yeah, we were definitely on the cutting edge of it. I mean, Europe was maybe a little bit ahead of us, but not a whole lot. So we were pretty much on the forefront. And because I was really, you know, I loved the challenge and I loved innovating, there would be all these opportunities that would come our way. And I would say yes to it all because that's where it got me where I was. So they'd be like, hey, can you put a bathroom in this thing? And can you, you know, this guy wants a mining lab to an assay lab to break down core samples. And can you do this, this? And, and I'd just be like, yeah, 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 for sure. Then I'd go ahead and figure it out. So I just had that mentality where it was the perfect Petri dish for me because I loved a challenge and I loved solving problems and I got to make money at it. So they'd be like, hey, can you, you know, this customer wants this. I'm like, yeah, 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 let's do it. Let's charge him this much money. And so it was really exciting. It was just a really exciting time. We were doing new things all the time. Oh, so all of them were slightly custom? Yeah, most of them. So we could have like a few core customers that would order what we'd consider fleet units. So they would order an office, like a 20 foot office, two windows and a door, air conditioner. That'd be like a standard office. 
we'd have a good uh, flow of those coming through. And then we'd have special projects like laboratories, oil and gas equipment, generator enclosures. We got into building fire training facilities. So we'd stack them up and then they would basically pump them full of smoke and the firefighters would go in there and train with them. So they had elevated stairs and more complicated engineering and stuff like that. So. So did people just buy them because they were trendy or was it also like cost effective for the, I guess, the end user who wanted these? Well, I think the draw to get anybody into anything new, there's got to be, in my opinion, there has to be some sort of price advantage. Otherwise, they're going to keep doing what they're regularly doing. So there was definitely a cost advantage and there was a durability factor. So a lot of these job sites were getting the modular trailers. Let's call that the traditional building. So that's a wood frame building, all wood with some metal siding on it. You being a physically strong bodybuilder type guy, you could probably put your fist through it or your foot through it. Like they're not very strong. So they would get them broken into on job sites. So our option was a steel box that was really hard to break into. Like you'd have to have a saw, like a, you know, a grinder and it would be really hard. So the job sites were kind of responding by going, Hey, so-and-so's job site got broken into and they weren't able to steal anything because they couldn't get into the container. There were some limitations to the container because they're only eight feet wide on the outside, which gives you about seven feet wide on the inside. So it's a fairly compact space. So there was resistance to that, but there was this big pro of security, cost efficiency and durability. Yeah, that makes sense. Because were most of the people using them just construction sites? Yeah, a lot of times. But, you know, even in remote locations, like a mining lab going way up north, like they want to make sure they've got millions of dollars of equipment in there. They want to make sure they can lock that thing. And some snowmobiler driving by isn't going to steal their $100,000 testing tool, right? So there was that factor. I think security is a big one for it. But versatility, because they're steel, you can drag, pull on oil sites in Alberta. They would be yanking these things around with big cats. And they just stood up so well to the environment where the traditional building. You, you'd yank on that wrong, the whole thing would fall apart. Like we used to portable classrooms. So we used to have like when certain schools expanded, at least in my county or whatever, they'd always put them on the basketball court outside or whatever. So for me, it wouldn't matter too much down here, especially because there is like no insulation. It's funny that you even say that. Now I remember this random one kid in my class one time, the teacher went to the bathroom, said he'd be right back. Some kid was fooling around with his backpack, was twirling around his head, accidentally let go. It hit the drywall ceiling up top and like half the ceiling came in during class Why the teacher left <laughs> and he came back. We're all just quiet. Like nothing happened. Everybody's <laughs> like, pointing fingers at somebody else. <laughs> yeah. It's like eight different panels, drywall panels up top, you know, that whatever is up there, soffits. It just fell in with the lighting. So just telling you about how flimsy it was. I mean, anyone could knock on that. And especially if you've got computers in there and stuff like that, like you're saying for job security. And then I could see up north where I would want that insulation even more and being in remote environments, how it's like, okay, versus me wheeling a portable classroom up to a mining site. No, absolutely. And on Mod Pro, like to this day, our core product would be an 8x20 or an 8x40 foot office. Like we sell tons of them. They're super durable. Yeah. And to your point, that's exactly right. They're just really strong. Can you stack them on top of each other? Yeah, absolutely. So we build a product right now that's called 
it's a hoarding product, which is a weird word, but basically what that is used for is at the front of a job site where the job site meets the sidewalk, the builder is responsible to protect the public from overhead debris and hazards or something, right? So we build a containerized version of that that can be dropped in place and we call them breezeways or walkways. And then we stack offices on top of those. So we create this little infrastructure because in Vancouver here, and I'm sure with any dense cities, they're building on top of each other, basically. Like there's no room for the actual act of construction because the uh, construction lines are so tight. So we put those in front and we build that product for companies that rent it out. So Mod Pro as a company is a business to business primarily, which has its pros and cons. And I can get into that later of why we went into Mod Pools because of that. But yeah, that's another innovative product. So Kind of the cool thing for me was like, I got to start working with engineers and designing and building stuff. And I really took a shine to it. I really liked it. And I felt like I got what their thinking was. And I understood structurally why they were doing what they were doing. And I quickly started doing my own designing and my own building, my own processes of thought and why I was going to build something the way I was. And that kind of preludes to where I am here. But that started back then of seeing all these possibilities. Like for me in my life, the container was the perfect solution to my ADD, learning disability, whatever crap that I had dealt with because it was this outlet of creativity and I could get financially rewarded for being creative and being innovative. So the container really has been like, we were meant for each other for sure. When was the container created? Do you know the shipping container? I did look at that a while back and I want to say the earliest ones are like, I think the thirties. Cause I think before that, what had happened is ships were bringing break bulk cargo over. So loose cargo, and they would have to like put it in nets and haul it off onto the dock. And it was a really cumbersome process. A lot of cargo got damaged and lost and it was very inefficient. That was the birth of the container. Yeah. And so they said the standard ones that they use now, I just looked it up, they're saying 1956 is when the one you're working on now. So yeah, I'm sure they had iterations till they figured out that, hey, you know, this is the best one to go with. So before that, when they're basically making one-way trips or were they not making one-way trips? Like what were they doing with all the containers before that? Yeah. So before that, the one-way trip container was invented, essentially. Other containers were, had to be a lot stronger and heavier built because they had to last a long time. And they were this asset that these companies would have hundreds of thousands of laying around the country. And there wasn't always a good means of bringing them back to China and to export countries. So they would just basically sit, a lot of them would rot. And then the worst thing would be they'd have to ship them back over empty, which would be very expensive because the ship lines always want to, everything wants to be paid for. All the trips need to be paid for because the shipping is actually quite expensive when it's empty because you don't get any value out of that, right? So that's where I think these containers, people started to wake up and go, man, there's these, because we do use used containers. And I know we haven't really talked about that yet. We just talked about the one trip, but we do use retired containers too. We typically don't build them into anything expensive because they're already about 15 to 20 years old. So you don't want to invest a bunch of capital into something where the structure is already mostly or half used up. I would say the average lifespan of a container is probably 30 to 40 years, if not treated, if just left the way it is, right? So that I think ended up with this abundance. And then, you know, they ended up getting really cheap because these lines were just wanting to unload these containers. Like, hey, it's 15 years old. Who's going to give me a thousand bucks for it? Like, who's going to give me 1500? Like, they just wanted to blast them out, right? So that gave opportunity for guys like me to make something out of them. It's about 2010. And then I had interrupted you and you said everything was doing well in business wise, but then you had a bad accident. 
Yeah. So things were going along quite swimmingly, making really good money, feeling on top of the world, you know, feeling very accomplished, which is a really good feeling coming from my background. That was just a really great feeling. I feel like I'd made it. And then right around somewhere in 2010, we were building a fire training facility. We were winching up this 2000 pound staircase so that it would bridge the top container to the bottom container and create access. And it wasn't going well. It wasn't going in place well. So I decided to get down underneath it, really smart, and try to help it along because it was stuck. What happened is the winch that we were using, it free spooled and let go and landed on the top of my foot and bounced off my foot essentially. And just, well, it stayed on my foot, but it, with such impact that it kind of bounced. And that was a real fork in the road for me because it did a soft crush, which is like everything compacted together, but nothing broke. Everything just squished. So my toe was out of place. It's an excruciating. If you've ever had a crush injury, they're one of the most excruciating because a break, it's almost like it lets go and then the tension's off. But this was just extreme. It's, it's like my foot was in a vice with someone turning it and I couldn't unwind it. It was just stuck in that tight position. So I went through this stage of you know, this happened and I pulled my foot out and I went through the shock phase of like being in denial, like, okay, you know, everyone back to work. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then within about 15 minutes, I just about passed out. I tried driving myself to the hospital with my standard truck, which people probably don't even know what a standard truck anymore. It has gears you have to shift manually with a clutch. So that didn't work. I didn't get too far, but passed out again. And then they, they ended up getting to the hospital, driving me there. And that was just a real big fork in the road for me because I had to be on my back for a couple of weeks straight. All in all, it took about three years before I could really be active on that foot again of rehab and all that. But here I am on my back and feeling pretty down on myself, but I'm running the business from my couch. Basically, I've got those 12 guys working for me and I'm calling the shots. They're coming over before work, after work, and I'm running things still and they're going fairly smoothly. But what I wasn't aware of was that the owners of the company saw that. And again, I'm guessing at this point, I don't have the details from them, but I think they started to go, okay, we're paying this guy. He's making really good money. He's making, you know, whatever, 150 grand a year. Do we need him or can we replace him with somebody who's 60 grand a year? And my wife brought this to my attention kind of like week two into my injury. We were in the bath together, which sounds awesome, but it wasn't really, I was soaking my foot, I think at the time or something. I don't know that I've taken a, I don't bath, I shower. So I don't know, it's just a weird story. That's why I remember it so clearly because we're in the bath here. And she goes, they're going to replace you. I've got this feeling they're going to replace you. And I was shocked. Like that was the first time I'd heard that. And I was in denial. I was like, there's no way they'd replace me. I'm the innovator. I'm the guy, I'm the man. Like they need me. She's like, you make too much money and I bet you they could replace you for a third the price. And that was that first time where my world just sort of closed in a bit. And I went, oh my God, I need this. Like I need this job. So I was in this position where I had to accept that. That was quite probable. And then I had to start making plans accordingly. So that's where I decided in turn, I won't get into all the de details, but I in turn decided to either take a buyout from them where they could buy out my company at the time, or I would start my own company and take projects on from them. They could be a customer and as well as other people. I got a question. Which foot was it? It was my left foot. I kept grabbing which my right foot. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if it's the left or what, because I'm sure everyone felt the pain. And I want to make sure everyone feels the left foot of pain. Yeah, no, it's my left foot. And it took an amazing amount of time for those nerves to grow back. Oh, I had extensive nerve damage. 
It was a crazy thing in my life, but it birthed my company, Mod Pro. And without that accident, I would have probably been let go of. It could be very different. My future would have been very different, I believe, without that accident. So it was one of those lemons that needed to be turned into lemonade. And it was character building for me. I think I was, I wouldn't say I was high in the hog, but I was feeling pretty confident. I was the guy that basically didn't graduate or barely graduated. And I was making really good money. I mean, if I was taking home 150, I don't know what that gross number was, but I didn't pay attention to that at the time. But it was a big number. I was doing really well. Thanks for coming. Remember, Oh, well, I got to thank uh, my business partner. She signed me up because I've been talking about you. Well, awesome business partner. I'm going to have to use that as a plug to tell people to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. But anyway, yeah, thanks for uh, setting this up. I get kind of the VIP treatment, I feel like. <laughs> Appreciate you doing the call here. Yeah. Favorite podcast by far. I love it. Oh, yeah? Why's that? So I graduated 2017 from Michigan. I heard that shout out the other day. That was pretty cool. Basically, two months after I graduated, I started listening to the podcast. Loved it. I think there were maybe 30 episodes or something out by that point. And I consider myself to be pretty entrepreneurial. Started a business last year. This helped a ton. And it's hard, I think, to find entrepreneurs. I was just looking for entrepreneurial meetups. And I think, wow, this is more of an awesome opportunity to talk with other entrepreneurs. The value is, I mean, it's insane. Like, people make these types of entrepreneurial insight things are thousands of dollars. This is 12 per month, but one per month is like nothing. Yeah, I guess at that point, so are you basically, you're the contractor, like those people are bringing in the deals, like the clients, if you will, and you were the contractor, you were that small business within that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was the guy that did all the work. They were the ones that got all the work. Do you want me to go into kind of the start of Mod Pro? Yeah, that works perfectly. That's what I was going to say. So then you decided, hey, eventually these guys are going to get rid of me because I'm making too much money. I'm just a contractor, if you will, which is still a good thing. You know, I'm not just saying you're just a contractor, but you realize the risk reward and this brought you to enlightenment. You're like, I have to be the guy who goes and gets the contracts to have this priced out. And then it's almost like when you learned a new trade with painting or electrical or whatever, you're just taking one step higher, right, to go get the actual contracts for these things. Yeah. And I think I was naive a lot to how difficult that would be. And I think I had it better than I thought I had it. I just thought, well, all I got to do is go get work. Like, that's not that hard. I can do that. I can go get work. The only person that I knew at the time that was in business was my wife's uncle. I gave him a call, met him for coffee at a cheap diner. I can remember the diner. What's the name of the diner? Oh, it's IHOP. (laughs) (laughs) I had some pancakes at IHOP. Well, maybe they could be a sponsor of the podcast. That's what I'd ask. Yeah. If you guys are listening, I apologize for calling you a cheap diner. You're an inexpensive (laughs) diner with quality food and great service. At a great price. At a great price. I know you tried to change your name a little while ago, and I'm sorry you tried to do that. It was a horrible decision, but we don't judge you. We still love your pancakes. End plug. How was that? Do you think they're going to sponsor us? That was fantastic. I'm going to cut it out right now and send it to him after the interview. Yeah, send it to them. Totally. IHOP, the place to eat breakfast. Anyway, so I met with him there. At a premium breakfast spot. At a premium (laughs) breakfast spot. Thank you, Austin. And then I just asked him a bunch of questions like, what should I do? And he's like, man, you got to start your own business. You got to do this. You got a great opportunity. This is an awesome, you can kill out there, you know? And he starts going over numbers, you know, what was their best month and what kind of, you know, he's crunching all the numbers. And then I don't remember quite whether it was in that meeting or a phone call, but he's like, I want to partner with you. I want to give you some money to start this business. How much money do you need? He saw the opportunity and he was pretty aggressive about being a part of this. 
the only thing that wasn't great was his terms really sucked. So I'll divulge the terms. The terms were he was going to give me $100,000. It was repayable within two years. It needed to be repaid within two years. And he was going to retain 30% of my company. And the more I thought about it, the more insulted I became because that's a horrible deal for anybody listening. Don't do that deal. That's a bad deal. So what I did from that, though, is I tried not to be insulted by that. And maybe some of you think that's a good deal, but I didn't. Austin, do you think that's a good deal? It doesn't sound like it from all the interviews I've done. Okay, good. I didn't think it was a good deal. Well, yeah, and pausing real quick, I was just doing some research on your IHOP in Apsford, British Columbia. Is that the one you sat at? Mm-hmm. It just was in the news that it permanently closed. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> IHOP. Come on, man. <laughs> it's sad. I did still listen to your terms. So <laughs> just to prove 30% and he wants all his money back in two years. Right? Yeah. And I think <laughs> it was even worse than that. I think it might've been sooner than two years. Like it was a bad deal. Six months. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It was not good for me. But what it did is it kind of woke me up to the fact of like counting the cost. So I went in with my wife and got back to the kitchen table. I'm like, how much money do we need to start this business? And I was hunting for land at the time. Industrial land is very hard to come by, I think, anywhere in the world. And I had stumbled across a piece of land that was just in the development process. Like literally, I took a wrong turn down a back road by my house. So it's about seven minutes away from my farm. And my farm is in between two city hubs. So I'm in between Mission and Abbotsford. And we've got this property that's right in between. So it's a good location. And this land I found was literally, I can ride my bike there in 10 minutes. It was just this perfect location because I didn't want to commute and travel. And I liked the idea of being close to home. I was able at the, as we're working this out, I'm working a deal with them and pushing this deal forward. But I had naively come up with the number of $130,000. To this day, I don't know how I got to that number. It was not realistic whatsoever. I didn't count half the cost of actually being in business. I just looked at the hard cost and we're like, oh yeah, 130,000, I can build a shop because I had to build all my infrastructure on this land. But I had to build it, couldn't be permanent infrastructure because it's on band land. So it had to be infrastructure out of containers, which was convenient for me. So I built my first, my first shop ended up being a shop out of shipping containers with a roof on it. And did it have to be near the port? Because that's where they're coming in? Yeah. So because of our proximity to Vancouver, we're within about a, like a 40 foot container cost me about $260 to get dropped off. So pretty low cost. And again, the advantage is we are by a port. So yes. How far is the drive from the port? Just curious. So that port is about, I want to say you can get there in 30 minutes. I don't know if everyone else's imagination runs wild as you speak. Like right when you're starting, I'm like, is he doing these in the port? The first time you were very doing them, I'm like, hey, I'm sure he obviously has an industrial property near it, but I didn't know again how much it would cost to get it to where you are. But it doesn't seem like too bad. Like you're saying that still within 30 minutes, it was still easy for them to deliver those. Totally. The business model was there. The expected cost to start the business was completely off. 130,000 wasn't nearly enough, but I had the balls just to go ahead and start moving forward. Now, I've probably got to pause this right now. And because I got to go to a helicopter lesson, I started learning how to fly helicopters because I'm getting my private license, which is a passion of mine, which is really sweet. So sometimes I call it dying, but most of the time I call it flying. And lately I've been doing more flying than dying, but I'm learning. So I'm about 21 hours in, and but I do have a lesson within about 15 minutes. So I don't know if you're interested, but do you want to continue this story? Yeah. Can we do a part two at another time? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Hopefully it's going well and hopefully there's some value in, in the story here. No, I think it definitely is. That's cool. So it's perfect because I guess we'll just come back at the transition of basically when you still started Mod Pro because we haven't even gotten to that part. So that'd be perfect. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great spot to pause it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. Well, like I said, I appreciate you telling us this part of the story. I guess if anyone wanted to reach out right now, would you be interested in if anyone reached out to you, the best way for them to contact you and say, thanks for doing the interview or more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say if they want to reach out to me, I'll just give them my personal email, which is paul at modpools.com. Okay. And they can send me an email and I'd be happy to talk to almost anybody. Yeah, almost. So not me, but I'm, a, <laughs> yeah. I'm feeling, yeah. Well, thank you for going in detail and depth of, you know, this first part of the story. And we look forward to when we jump into when you actually started your first real business. It's all the lead up, which is important because, again, there's so many steps that, that lead up to you eventually doing your own thing. Right. So thank you for sharing that thus far. Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks for having me on. And I'm looking forward to part two. Hey, guys, Energetic Austin here. I hope you enjoyed that interview. The second part of the interview is actually available right now for all our Patreon members. Here's a preview of it. I was trying to test people out. Like I talked to my friends and be like, hey, what do you think of my pool? And again, there just wasn't a lot of support. Like people didn't <laughs> resonate. You need new friends. Man, I do. I don't know. Like no, nobody thought it was a good idea. And that's what really took us by surprise was like, whoa, this is a way bigger problem than we had thought. I don't know. I want to say like 10 people walked by and kind of looked at it. I had one person ask me if it was a recycled garbage can. But this one lady came by and I don't know if she was an angel sent from heaven, but she looked me square in the eyes and she asked some questions and she says, this is an amazing idea and you're going to be a millionaire. And then she just kept walking. And I don't know, man, like that, that just, to me, it just gave me a little shot in the chest. And I'm like, yeah, this is a good idea. This is going to work. And I kind of talked myself into it and I kind of got out from behind the little desk I was behind and I started talking to people and I just needed that little shot in the arm. Was that lady your wife? <laughs> How did you know, Austin? <laughs> it was one of those kinky nights where you pretend you're somebody else. My wife does that every night. She always calls me the wrong name. I obviously appreciate anyone who's listening now because they're a supporter too. But just, yeah, thanks for being a member and sharing your story and breaking it up in two parts that help people here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if anybody out Patreons me, you have to call me. So <laughs> I'm going to tell my wife to start donating then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's weird. Someone's donating $1,000 a month, Paul. Um, no, <laughs> I found your podcast at a bit of a low note in this story. It was a humbling experience I was going through and I just grabbed onto it and I downloaded every episode I could. I think you had like 30 at the time. And so I've been a faithful listener ever since because you've got that no bullshit approach. Just personally, I just get a lot out of listening to people. So become a Patreon member to get part two right now. And by the way, become a Patreon member right now, right now. Right now, right now.